This is the Annex of Sociology Podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we talk with Patricia Homan, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Faculty Associate in the Pepper Institute on Aging and Public Policy at Florida State University. Trish is the author of two recent ASR papers. Her first, Structural Sexism and Health in the United States, A New Perspective on Health Inequality and the Gender System, was published in 2019. Her recent follow-up with Amy Burdett, When Religion Hurts, Structural Sexism and Health in Religious Congregations, was just published. Burdett is also at Florida State University and currently the editor of the Journal of Health and Social Behavior. Today, structural sexism at the macro and meso levels and the impact of structural sexism on women in conservative religious congregations. Stay with us. Well, Trish, thanks so much for joining us on the Annex. So happy to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. You have two recent awesome ASR papers. Um, the first one is really helping, I think, reorient and advance our understanding of sexism and its relationship to health at the macro and meso levels. Uh, I'm fascinated by this concept of structural sexism that you develop. So what is structural sexism and how have you been able to measure it across these levels of analysis? Yeah, so I have been really heavily influenced by Barbara Rissman, her um, gender structure theory, and Cecilia Ridgway and Shelley Carell, Unpacking the Gender System. Also, Pat Martin, Gender as a Social Institution. So all of these feminist perspectives um, over the last 20 years have come to acknowledge gender as not just an attribute of individuals or some kind of role or identity, but a system. These feminist scholars see gender as an institutionalized system of social practices for defining two groups of different people, men and women, and then organizing a whole slew of social relations of inequality on the basis of that difference. So that's sort of a rough um, quote from Ridgway and Carell, how they think about gender. And I think it's really important because I'm trained as a medical sociologist and demographer. So in that world, we're always talking about gender gaps comparisons between men and women. But that really frames gender as an attribute of individuals, individual bodies, right? So if we're taking seriously this notion of gender as a system or as an institution, what does that look like? We have to come up with ways to think about it and measure it at a sort of more structural systemic level. And so that's sort of what led me to this place of wanting to think about um, gender and health from a more systemic point of view. And so I've come up with this definition of structural sexism, and I define it as systematic gender inequality in power and resources in a given gender system. And so it's, I like to think of it as distinct from interpersonal sexist behavior. So it's not just me being mistreated at work, um, sexually harassed or catcalled when I walk down the street or And it's not necessarily perceived, right? But it's about this sort of social organization of various aspects of the world and our lives and society that are really unequal. So the gender distribution of power, resources, rights, roles, exposures, opportunities, all of these things can be more or less equal um, across men and women. And so I think of 
certain social contexts as being more structurally sexist or less structurally sexist because we see variation in, in how these things are organized. And so that sort of gave me leverage to start developing measures of these things. And then I can start comparing women in a low sexism environment to women in a high sexism environment rather than comparing women to men. And so I'm actually measuring the sexism rather than sort of assuming that it doesn't affect men or that men are some sort of baseline. Uh, and so that's sort of the intuition and the idea behind it. What you said there just at the very end about how sexism actually has effects on both men and women in society is a really, I think, important insight that comes out of your your work. High levels of structural sexism are also bad for men. They're not as bad uh, for men as they are for women, but they are also bad for men. And so this is one of those things that is uh, just genius. And it makes me think about other forms of inequality, economic and racial and so forth, in which the folks who uh, basically everyone is harmed by this. So actually, you think about if everyone's harmed by it, then that means everyone can benefit at least some somewhat by making things better. So I like to think in a lot about ways that we can be in solidarity with other people. And your research actually indicates that, you know, we can benefit, like everyone benefits when we have uh, essentially more egalitarian institutions and structures in our, in our society. Okay. That's too much editorializing, but I just love it so much. Um, <laughs> well, thanks. Yes. There's a lot of evidence in my work and in other folks work that inequality in general is bad for everyone. So if you think about the work of Wilkinson and Pickett, you know, the spirit level and this kind of thing, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, not just structural sexism, but income inequality and very various types of inequality can harm everyone in society because it damages social relationships, increases competition for dominance, undermines safety, productivity, and well-being of the entire society. Um, so I think it's really important and useful to be able to think about that and sort of now that men aren't the baseline, that we can compare men to high and in low high and low sexism environments to one another rather than to women, we can actually see that, you know, sexism is toxic for men as well. So fascinating. So let's talk about measures. When you're thinking about how structural sexism shows up, you know, how, how do you get a grasp on you know, where to measure it or how to measure it? What does it look like in the, in, in the wild? Yeah. So let me first just talk kind of generally about how I think I'm thinking about it. And then we can talk about the specific measures I've used in some of these papers. I really see this as just a starting off point, a jump, a jumping off point. Um, and I'm really hoping that myself and many other scholars will continue to sort of develop this line of thinking because there's all kinds of ways that we can measure this stuff um, if we think creatively with available data or with gathering our own data. When I'm thinking about structural sexism, I like to, especially at the macro level, I like to think about domains because uh, I think that's a helpful way of organizing all the possible ways we could measure it. So I've identified four key domains that I usually c develop measures uh, for, and those are political, economic, cultural, and then physical or reproductive. It's interesting because when you look at the structural racism literature, people tend to think about cultural racism and structural racism as separate. And sort of here in the structural racism, I've considered a cultural type of sexism to be part of a structural sexism. So I'm still, still sort of thinking about the parallels there and what makes the most sense. But I do think that there are important 
cultural measures that we can include in this sort of idea of structural sexism. So to get a little more specific, uh, structural sexism in the political domain could be observed in the degree to which men and women are unequal in both their numerical interpretation in legislative bodies, but also in their positions on certain committees or executive roles that would give them power over the allocation of resources and major decisions. In the economic domain, structural sexism can be seen in well-known patterns of gender-related job segregation, gender wage gaps, the underrepresentation of women in high-profile, powerful positions like CEOs, right? Women are only about 5% of S&P 500 CEOs right now. I mean, that's minuscule. Also, the feminization of poverty, right? The extent to which women are overrepresented among the poor would be another sort of economic indicator of structural sexism. In the cultural domain, it consists of the marginalization of women in religious organizations and in the media, as well as perhaps more widespread popular beliefs and stereotypes about women's roles, values, and competence, and maybe their natural tendencies and abilities. Um, and then finally, structural sexism in the physical or reproductive domain uh, manifests in the differential affordance of bodily autonomy and appropriate medical care to men and women. So you can see this in the curtailment of sexual and reproductive freedoms. That's the easiest way to measure it and a really important one. Um, and also for me personally, as a parent, I just know that control over my fertility is foundational to my equal participation in society. Um, but then also we, we can see this in legal and cultural perspectives related to sexual violence as well. So that's sort of how I think about the domains more broadly. Um, I don't know if there's a certain paper where you specifically want to talk about the measures that I've done or. If you yeah, well, maybe, maybe we can uh, talk about the more recent paper with Amy Burdett on the cult, what you identify as the cultural domain and specifically religion as uh, an institution that features, often features anyway, it can feature structural, structural sexism. You know, I live in Abilene, Texas, and there are a great number of, of white Christian conservatives around here. Uh, so let's let's uh, think a little bit more specifically maybe about how you measured cultural, uh, congregational structural sexism, and what did you find out about the relationship between structural sexism and religious groups and women's health? Yeah, sure. So we conceptualize structural sexism as systematic gender inequality in power and resources um, within religious congregations in this study specifically. So what was neat about this study is that we were able to combine data from the National Congregation Study, which is a nationally representative study of religious congregations in the U.S., and we were able to get information about the congregations from that study, and then we were able to connect it to individuals that are actually situated within those congregations um, using the general social survey, which is connected to it. Um, and we had special link identifiers to connect those two data sets. And for anyone who's interested in doing that, there's just a wealth of information in those two data sets, and it could be a great resource for all kinds of studies. And they should reach out to Mark Chaves at Duke uh, to access those data. We 
develop three different measures of structural sexism in order to account for women's power and status within governance, in clergy, and then across the range of available leadership positions within the church. So first, we use a measure, just a binary measure, indicating whether women are prohibited from serving as full-fledged members of the congregation's main governing body or coordinating committee. Um, this measure is represents women's representation in governance of the church, and we think it's particularly important for assessing the relationship between structural sexism and health, given that there's growing evidence that women's political representation is vital for population health. So in my own work, I've found a connection between women's political representation and infant mortality rates, and there's also a lot of evidence in the developing world. So we think that this particular measure by itself is really important. So we have one version of church-level structural sexism that's just a binary measure, yes or no, are women prohibited from serving on this governing body? The second measure we have is um, whether women are prohibited from serving as the head clergy person or primary religious leader of the congregation. So this kind of sexism reflects what religion scholars have called the stained glass ceiling, right? So are women are women allowed <laughs> to be the leaders or are they kept out? <laughs> the stained glass ceiling. So can women break through the stained glass ceiling in these congregations or not? Um, and actually, it's much more common that women are excluded from being the head pastor than from being excluded uh, from the governing board. Um, it's only about, I think, 13 or 18 percent, I can't remember off the top of my head, of churches excluded women from the governing body. But I think closer to like in the 40 or 50 percent range excluded women from being the head pastor. So this one's more common. Um, and then third and finally, we created a sexism scale. So this was a summary measure indicating how many of the following things women in a congregation were prohibited from doing. So if you're if women are allowed to do everything, they get a score of zero. So they're low on structural sexism. Right. That's the lowest you could have. Um, and then for each thing they're prohibited from, they get a score of you know, they add one. So uh, teaching co-ed classes, preaching at a main worship service, serving on the governing body, and being the head pastor or clergy person. So this combines the first two with all the other measures of sort of what women are allowed to do that are available in the NCS. So I think that there is a lot of other ways we could capture structural sexism in religious institutions, but these were the ones available to us in the National Congregation Study. And we found that regardless of which of the three measures we used, if we looked at those two standalone items or the whole spectrum, uh, we found that structural sexism in religious congregations was associated with worse self-rated health for women. Um, and for men, there didn't seem to be a statistically significant effect, um, but they were also not significantly different from women, which is sort of a statistically interesting situation, which is why we did that Bayesian analysis to give us a little more insight. So women who are members of more structurally sexist congregations report lower levels of health. That's right. Which is, a, which is a good measure, right? It's one of the best measures of sort of overall health that people have, that we have as uh, survey researchers, right? And we know that it's associated with a lot of objective measures of, of health status. Yes, uh, it's one of the strongest predictors of mortality. So, so that's yes, a pretty good, a good outcome to think, to think about. Um now, the flip side of that, of course, would be that 
women who are members of congregations that have low structural sexism actually have higher levels of, of self-reported health. That's, that's accurate that's as well. Right. Yep. So, well, there's two comparisons that we make in the paper. So the first is just like women in high versus low sexism congregations. And the women in high sexism congregations are sicker, you could say, than the women in low sexism congregations. Um, or you could say the low sexism women are healthier, either way you want to say it. Um, but then we said, well, what about the people who are not church attenders at all who are not involved in religion, right? Because the the issue is we have this long-standing evidence that religion is good for your health. It makes you healthy. So how do we make sense of the fact that sexism is bad for your health? Religion is good for your health, but a lot of religious institutions are sexist. So that's what we wanted to know. And so then we when we bring in this sort of third group of non-participants, that's where we really see what I think is the interesting stuff. And what we find is that... Um, Women who attend sexist congregations, their health is not significantly different from women who do not attend at all. So it's not worse, right? They're not like being harmed by the sexism so bad that they're like worse off than if they didn't go at all. They're the same. It's only women who attend inclusive congregations that sort of get this health benefit from religious participation that we've seen. So it sort of suggests to me that the longstanding positive effects of religion for health may only apply to people who are empowered within their congregations, who are not subordinated or excluded. So thinking about extending this to LGBT folks would be a really interesting way to go next. So this is why I think was so powerful. One of the things anyway that's so, so powerful about this paper is that we have this idea that religion is protective of folks' health, but you know, looking deeper inside, we can see inside that institution, we can see that it's not equally protective for, for all folks. And it's actually, um, you know, not, not helpful uh, for folks who are in high levels of structurally sexist congregations, um, which in some ways makes me think that the more uh, inclusive, maybe progressive congregations are actually sort of driving that, that I know some sociologists are really keen to talk about the health effects and health benefits of, of religious attendance and affiliation for a lot of good reasons, right? I mean, social networks and people who care about you when you're sick and, you know, folks, I mean, potlucks are nice and, and you get to socialize with people and, you know, whatever, whatever sort of spiritually or otherworldly benefits there are uh, or might be um, are also important to people. Um, but really this is about, this is a, a pretty, really important sort of social institution for maintaining, um, you know, socializing ties, right. And for structuring the lives of, of folks sort of, um, you know, outside of their work, work relations. Um, yeah. So I thought that was a really, a really smart way to disaggregate some of these effects that we, that we see and sort of painting all congregations at, as the same is really unhelpful, particularly for those whose health is actually um, diminished in, as a part of their, as uh, in response to their participation. Right. So is that what we're thinking about in terms of the, the mechanism of how this works? So you've got maybe women in the congregations who are formally barred from leadership positions, from preaching positions, other sorts of leadership, and that's harmful to them in terms of their expression of, of their, of their gifts. 
their desires to be leaders, their capacities to be leaders. And the idea here is that that is going to have a negative effect if you're like repeatedly blocked from like contributing to your religious community, especially if you're like really committed, right? If you're like a really faithful person, you have a spiritual gift or you have some kind of orientation to, to ministry, but you're not allowed to do that on account of your sex. That, that sounds like it would be depressing to say the least, uh, you know? Yes, that's definitely one of the ways we're thinking about how this happens. I think there are a lot of mechanisms that could be at play here. Also, when we think about um, the fact that women in these uh, more inclusive congregations are benefiting from religious from religion um, because they're not in structurally sexist um, congregations, it may be that their inclusive church is providing them opportunities for leadership and enrichment um, that they're not experiencing in the workplace um, or in other aspects of society where they're being blocked. Um, So it might be actually like we can think about the harms that the sexist churches are doing, but we can also think about the benefits being provided uh, by these inclusive religious um, institutions as well. That makes total sense. Like the whole compensatory aspect of religious community is that it's a, a place that is not, you know, it's not work. It's not home. It's a place that is, that is, uh, you know, I, I think particularly maybe in more inclusive congregations, a place of, you know, renewal and rest, but also a place where you can express some of your deepest like commitments and, and values. Right. Which is not a thing that, that often uh, happens at most workplaces or, um, you know, in the daily life of getting kids fed and, you know, backpacks packed and you know, walking kids to school or driving them, that, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think when we think about um, participation in a sexist church, it might be an indicator of kind of exposure to a whole system of structural sexism because it's part of a constellation of other positions within various institutions and relationships. So for example, the family may function as a particularly important domain for um, providing institutional support for um, gender stratified roles within the home. So to the extent that religious, sexist religious congregations are sort of encouraging traditional gender divisions of labor and causing increases of sexism in the marriage and in the home, this could also be sort of a mechanism here that's sort of driving the, these negative health consequences. So it's not really just the congregation itself in isolation. Um, it's part of this sort of network of relationships and systems within which women and men and people in general find themselves embedded. Yeah. So, so compounding, so compounding uh, one compounding factor among many in terms of a, of a sexist, a structurally sexist, you know, society, or at least sort of domains of life that travel, you know, that travel together. Right. So we weren't able to connect those in this study, but I think that will be an important and interesting thing to look at in the future. Well, let's, let's do turn to some of your more recent work. I was able to take a peek at some of your presentations and, and work that's forthcoming. I was really um, fascinated by this structural sexism index that you have, have developed. And so I think, you know, this reminds me of like you were talking about earlier, um, Wilkinson and Pickett's spirit level, and they have that index of all those social problems. It, It reminds me, it reminds me of that kind of strategy. So what's in your structural sexism index and, 
How have you applied it? I mean, how do states vary on this measure? Where can we think about how the domains in which it applies? All right, that's a great question. So I think of this index as really useful, but also just a start, because uh, I think there are so many other things that we could add to capture this. So I'm hoping to hopefully have some grant funding in the future to further develop um, these measures. But I picked, I started with um, six measures that I could get consistently or pretty consistently over time because I wanted to match it up with um health data from the National Longitudinal Study of Youth 1979, and I had um, people's physical health from 1998 to 2012, and so I wanted a measure every two years or so. Um, And so I have three measures in the economic domain, and that is um, the gender wage gap. So this is based on the ratio of men's to women's weekly earnings, um, the labor force participants participation gap. So that is the ratio of men's to women's labor force participation rates. And then the feminization of poverty, like I talked about. So the ratio of women to men that are under the poverty line. So all these things are measured at the U.S. state level. I should have mentioned that first. Um, There's some really important new research by Jennifer Montez and colleagues that has focused on how U.S. states are serving as institutional actors shaping population health because they have so much power because the power from the federal government has sort of been distributed more downward to states. And then states have put in in place all kinds of preemption laws where they're taking the power back from local governments. And so states are becoming just really even more important since the 1980s, um, but have always been important sort of political, legal, and administrative units. So um, I focused on measuring macro-level structural sexism across states within these domains. So the economic domain, which I already told you about, the political domain, and for that, I just have one measure, and it's the proportion of the state legislature seats that are occupied by men. And I will say that um, during my data collection, so the period between 1998 and 2012, there was never a state in which women had equal political representation in their state's legislature. And in fact, even now, there's only one state uh, where women have equal representation, and that is Nevada. And actually, women have 60% of legislature seats in Nevada, so they're more than equal. Um, So there's a lot of variation across states in all of these measures. We have um, some states where there's only about nine, um, about 13% of legislature seats are occupied right. by women. That's pretty low. Um, so that is the political domain. The cultural domain, I use the proportion of the population that is composed of religious conservatives. And that may sound kind of strange to people. How is just the number of religious people in a setting? How is that structural sexism? It's an important indicator of structural sexism because these religious institutions relegate women to subordinate roles in the family and in the church, both in their ideology and in their practice. And so I want to know how sort of strong these institutions are in the state level environment, right? How much influence they have over the culture and the policy of the U.S. state. Um, So that's one of the measures. And then the last measure is the physical reproductive domain, which is the proportion of women who live in a county without access to an abortion provider. So those are the six measures I have. And I've um, they're really 
pretty strongly correlated and I've done various types of sensitivity analyses to sort of see what's going on with them, but they seem to be really consistently related to health, individual level health, um, regardless of individual level controls that I put in my models and also some state level controls. I usually control for the poverty rate, the Gini coefficients, um, whether the state is in the South or not, just because we know the South is really has really poor health for a number of reasons. And certainly sexism is probably one of them. So it's a more conservative estimate when we control for South. But we just want to make sure that it's not just a Southern thing that like both within and outside the South, we see that sexism is associated with with worse health for women, uh, but also for men. Typically, the effects I find are stronger for women than they are for men. um, But it often seems to affect both. And then in thinking about like which states, you asked me which states overall were sort of highest and lowest. Um, yeah, well, advise some, people on where to live, Trish. Yeah, advise them based on sexism. Well, the one thing you'll find is that interestingly from my structural intersectionality work, we can talk about a little bit later, when I look at how structural racism is distributed across states, and I compare that to how structural sexism is distribu- distributed across states, they're not the same. So the most sexist states are not necessarily the most racist states. So it seems like you can only avoid one or the other. <laughs> you can't avoid them all. Uh, maybe there are some states that are low on everything. I'm not sure. But so if, if we're back to just talking about sexism, the highest sexism states were Utah, Wyoming, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Um And the lowest were Maryland, Vermont, Hawaii, and California. I'm a Floridian. Florida ranks 34th out of 50, so that's not terrible. Right in the middle, kind of. Could be worse. (laughs) I kind of wonder, I I was thinking about where can I find Texas on this? Well, one of the most striking things that that, uh, I saw in this study is that In states with high structural sexism, women at age 50 live about six and a half years shorter lives. That is, they don't live as long by six and a half years uh, compared to women in states with low structural sexism. So this is, um, that's a lot of time. Yeah, so that's actually not from the ASR study that's already published. This is work that's in development, hopefully be published in demography or some outlet like that, because what I did was I took these structural sexism measures and I connected them to data from the health and retirement study, which I hadn't done in the past. And then I, given high versus low levels of sexism exposure, I used a predictive model to generate predictive probabilities of becoming disabled and of dying. And then I used those to create a series of multi-state life tables to estimate the life expectancy, healthy, unhealthy, and total life expectancy of men and women at age 50. And you're exactly right. Um, women in the highest sexism states are predicted to live six years shorter on average than women in the lower sexism states. And for men, there is also a difference, but it's about half the size. So about three years um, shorter for men in high sexism versus low sexism states. I mean, this is one of the things I love about teaching medical sociology because we're talking about like real stakes here. You know, this is, I mean, you know, forms of discrimination and inequality are harmful to health, but they're also harmful to life expectancy. And, you know, it does matter how long people live, you know, because life can can at least be good sometimes. 
Yes, absolutely. So I'm definitely excited to get that work out there. Um, presented it a couple times, but it needs to be published. I was going to say spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> you heard it here first, Annex listeners, although probably by the, <laughs> maybe by the time this is posted, it'll already be uh, in press. So fingers crossed. Oh, I should say that I should mention that funding for that project was provided by the Network on Life Course Health Dynamics and Disparities in the 21st Century. Um, it's a great, great group funded by the NIA. So shout out to them. We, we always have to, you know, thank our our funders and the and the um, and the people that make the make the research happen. So, uh, you mentioned health effects for men. Um, you know, since Texas also doesn't score very well on this uh, structural sexism index, I'm I'm wondering how how concerned I should be. <laughs> what uh, <laughs> what what steps I I can take? Although this is one of those things where we're talking about a structure here. We're not talking about you know things that are un, in any individual person's you know purview. Although you know we can lobby, we can sort of join activist groups, we can do other kinds of things to to help to help change help change this this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll say you like you have other advantages that will provide you with health and <laughs> longer life expectancy. But if you resided somewhere else, it might be even better for you. Yeah, no, I have lots, I have all the advantages, Trish. That's why I tell people <laughs> all the time. I have all of the advantages. Uh, but yes, working for structural change is really, really important. So um, another, some of the, your other research talks about the relationship between high structural sexism and self-rated health. I think we've talked about this, uh, you know, some before in terms of how uh, comparing men and women in sort of high structural sexism versus low structural sexism contexts really does have health-rated health or effects in terms of their self-rated health. What about other variables we might think about in, in your models, education, you know, other forms of status? Uh, are those also, you know, helpful in meet, in uh, mitigating some of the effects of structural sexism? How does how do those interactions work? Yeah, so I didn't in my um, 2019 ASR paper using the NLSY data. I didn't find a lot of evidence of statistical interactions with the sexism effects. However, when I'm looking, I've done some recent analyses using the health and retirement study where there are like pretty big differences uh, um, in education across cohorts and stuff like that. I do find that um, it's folks with the lowest levels of education that are most harmed by structural sexism. It's very similar to what um, Montez, Zajakova, and Hayward find um, that people with lower education are more harmed by or more affected by the state level context in which they live. So by the state's tobacco control environment and the state's economic policy and things like that. So there, I hate to, I don't really like to use the word vulnerability because I just think it, it it's can be like insulting to people and makes, puts the emphasis on those people like they're missing something, but it's more like, I like to think of maybe like exclusion or oppression. And so people who are marginalized or excluded or oppressed and on one dimension or others are more susceptible to the negative health effects of various types of negative things in their environment. So that's why maybe women are more affected than men, low income folks more affected than higher income folks, right? So there's some evidence of that, but not a ton that I've published myself yet. I think, I mean, one thing that seems to be coming 
coming clear in a variety of 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 domains in our in our research, not only in health but in other other important outcomes, is or are the the intersections here. You know, so one of my preoccupations is intersectionality. And as Bell Hooks says, we seem to be living in a white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy. She probably has a couple other drifters in there. Um, but what what would what do you know about you know either your own research or some other folks about the combined effects of structural sexism and structural racism, particularly for Black and Indigenous people of color, men and women, you know, in the U.S. That's a great question. So I think that intersectionality or developing a sort of structural intersectionality perspective is the next important direction we need to go in this research besides beyond sort of building on these baseline measures that I've developed and sort of adding to the index and examining it in various other types of environments and settings and outcomes, all those kinds of things. I think it's really going to be important to extend in a more intersectional direction. So Tyson Brown and Brittany King and I have a project that we've been working on that hopefully will come out this summer um, in the special issue of the Journal of Health and Social Behavior. And what we do is we try to sort of review the last decade of research on intersectionality in health and then think about how structural perspectives and intersectional perspectives can really be combined um, in order to create a new sort of structural intersectionality approach and start to think about what that might look like and entail. And uh, so what we did was we had measures of structural racism, structural sexism, and income inequality. So the the holy trinity of, of, of sociology research, right? Uh, race, class, gender. So we started there and we wanted to look at the, how those types of structural inequality intersect across um, time and space um, in U.S. states. And so in that paper, we sort of develop that idea and look at how, how those intersect and how they affect health. What we found was a little bit what I alluded to earlier that the basically structural sexism and structural racism and income inequality are not as highly correlated as you would expect. Um, structural racism, at least how we are measuring it, um, tends to be highest in the Midwest and Northern states. Um, and that's kind of consistent with studies that have shown really high levels of racial inequality in housing and criminal justice and things like that in those areas. And then structural sexism is highest in the Southern and Rocky Mountain regions. And then income inequality is really concentrated um, along both coasts um, and states with really large urban populations. So New York, California, Florida, and Texas. So there really is actually surprisingly little overlap. So there's basically a relatively weak and slightly negative uh, association, just bivariate association between structural racism and structural sexism. And that really suggests to me that there are distinct processes at work in generating these systems of oppression, at least in terms of how they're manifesting in U.S. state level environments. And then when we look at how those things affect health, we do find that all of the types of inequality that we measured, structural inequalities, um, had effects on the health of Black women. So they were most consistently associated with negative health among Black women. You were saying this is really interesting because um, when we when we think about, or at least when I talk about and think about intersectionality, I'm not 
thinking about parceling out necessarily the effects of racism or sexism, because that's the whole point, right? Is that folks experience those oppressions, you know, simultaneously and black women in particular, uh, I mean, Crenshaw is like classic example of being discriminated against on the basis of both race and gender at the same time. And instead of seeing that as um, double dipping on some kind of, uh, some kind of, um, you know, program for diversity enhancement or something like that, rather sort of being um, being doubly impacted, right? Uh, but actually not doubly impacted, simultaneously impacted uh, by um, racism and and sexism in ways that are hard to parse out. But what but what I hear you saying is that there are different mechanisms at work in structural racism and structural sexism that nonetheless conjointly operate to um, oppress and marginalize women of color and black women in particular relative to um, other women and then, and then men uh, of color and also, also white men. Um, That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. Cause I think this is going to like reshape, potentially reshape anyway, how I think about and teach um, these kinds of inequalities. I'm teaching an inequality class this fall and um, and this work is going to be really helpful, I think, in in clarifying the the relationships here, and then trying to think about why um, certain state level environments are different. And maybe there are some of these same mechanisms in terms of public policy at the state level, as you were talking about, sort of devolving federal um, federal decision making authority or federal policy power down to the down to the state levels. You know, just just seeing in the news that my home state of Missouri, the governor has rejected some of the um, the things that were approved by voters in a ballot initiative. So the, the governor has said, no, we're not going to expand, you know, uh, health insurance right under the Affordable Care Act, even though that's what you know these these state level these state voters wanted. Uh, you know, we're not going to uh, make it easier for folks to vote or make uh, gerrymandering a thing of the past, you know, th- those sorts of things. And those are state level, state level decisions. Yeah, that's really discouraging. I saw that news, actually. And I teach I teach health policy. So this is all like deeply important to me, um, besides just my research and my teaching as well. Yes, I don't know if it would be helpful for me to kind of explain a little bit more about what we did intersectionally in that study. I don't know if I explained it very clearly. Um, but once we developed measures for structural racism, sexism, and income inequality, we categorized each state as high or low on each type of inequality. And then we created these um, intersectional categories. So they could either people could live in a state level environment that was characterized as high or low on each of these types of inequalities. So there were eight total combinations. So you could be in a environment where everything was low, all right. low inequalities were low. You could be in a high racism only, high sexism only, high genie only, and then combinations like high racism and sexism or all three high. So the, that's sort of how we did it. And then we looked at the health effects of any combination of those intersectional categories versus if all of the inequalities were low. And that's what we found basically that almost every combination had a harmful effect on health for black women. Wow. That, I think that is really helpful to think about 
and it also shows kind of the matrix speaking of an intersectional metaphor the matrix of possibilities if we're thinking about these three dimensions of structural structural inequality so i'm imagining some some plots and some like sort of us maps right that would show uh the different dimensions of of inequality on kind of like a color spectrum or something like that i don't know if you've done this um or are planning on doing it but a way to kind of visualize this and make it really make it really clear for folks that um these kinds of um structural level variables have uh, you know significant impacts on on population health at the state level Yes, yes. So they'll have to read the paper to see that. But there will definitely be some pretty plots and maps to make things more clear. It's hard to explain just in words. But just thinking about how we can combine structural perspectives and intersectional perspectives is really important. And I know um, Whitney Pirtle has done some really interesting work recently on structural gendered racism uh, as related to COVID, I think specifically. And there's a trend I noticed in her work that I think is going to be a really important thing too. Like we've measured structural racism and structural sexism separately and talked about how they overlap or combine, but we don't have measures of structural gendered racism, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Like we're almost like, thinking about intersectionality one step later, like how they combine to shape health, but we're not like thinking about our measures in an intersectional way. So that's right. another direction we could go. So like, I actually do have another, another paper um, that is forthcoming in demography with um, Bethany Everett, Morgan Philbin and Aubrey Lindbergh. And that paper, we actually look at how sexism and heterosexism combine. And our measure, I would say our measure is intersectional because it's we put them all into a single index. We're basically saying we develop a measure of heteropatriarchy. Uh, and we say that you have to measure both heterosexism and sexism because they're related to one another. And actually the subordination of LGBTQ people relies on the enforcement of gendered norms and inequalities. Right. So we're punishing both men and women who don't conform to these traditional sexist gender ideologies that disempower women. And so uh, we look at the effects of heteropatriarchy on birth outcomes in the ad health study. So that's sort of my first, my sort of next project that looks at a more intersectional approach within the actual measures themselves. So I think there's a lot of neat, neat research to be done and uh, really exciting. It's an exciting time to be doing this work. Well, I was going to ask you about, you know, future work. That sounds really, really exciting. And, and uh, Whitney Pirtle will be a guest on a future episode. Of the oh, NX, great. So everyone can, can look out for that. She's a friend and fellow Vanderbilt PhD. So uh, we're, we're trying to do the things uh, for sure. Well, Trish, is there anything else folks need to know about, about your research stuff we haven't covered so far? Anything you want to make sure people are aware of in terms of your work or, or, um, or future directions? Uh, well, we've covered a lot of ground today, I yeah. think. Uh, but I guess just there's a lot of exciting work to be done. You know, I've, I'm starting to see papers come across my desk to review that, use similar measures of structural sexism in really interesting ways. And it gets me so excited that other people are finding this useful and that they're able to apply it in their own work. And I do think 
besides developing more measures, like I talked about, um, thinking more intersectionally, I also think it's going to be really important to look at these other systems of oppression. So more in-depth looking at um, cis heterosexism, ableism, nativism, like thinking about those from a structural perspective, I think would be really useful and important. And I don't think there's a ton of stuff out there on that yet, um, like structural ableism or structural ageism or that kind of thing. So I, I, yeah, I just think there's a lot of interesting works for fo- work for folks to be doing. We just did an episode with um, Joseph O. Baker at East Tennessee State on nativism and xenophobia. And now I'm thinking about how how to measure nativism and xenophobia at the state level and then relating that to you know, other kinds of outcomes with that, whether that is health. I mean, maybe there are effects of, of uh, nativism on people's self-reported health. Maybe there's effects on, you know, uh, other kinds of policy uh, outcomes. Uh, anyway, I don't know. But but it, it's nice to it's it's good to to think about how to apply this um, this perspective in you know in creative ways as you say. Well, Trish, thanks so much for joining us. Where can folks find you if they want to follow your research on the socials? You have a Twitter. Right? Oh, I do have Twitter. My Twitter handle is at pa underscore homan. I'm pretty sure that's right. <laughs> Okay, at at PA underscore Homan. Um, Good. And of course, everyone set up Google Alerts for all of these papers that are coming coming out on structural sexism, structural uh, and and structural intersectionality. Uh, It sounds like there's a lot in the in the pipeline and the trajectory is is set, which is great. Great. Thanks so much, Trish. And I appreciate all of your all of your work. And I think it's really going to uh, be a part of a major move in our study of health inequality and uh, thinking thinking through these um, these effects and in more nuanced ways that are more real to sort of how people actually experience their their lives. So thanks so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Today's guest was Patricia Holman from Florida State University. Our interviewer was Daniel Morrison from Abilene Christian University. For more on the Annex Sociology Podcast, visit us on the web, theannexpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at SociAnnex. On Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. This episode was produced by Joseph Cohen. Music by Lena Orsa. Thanks for listening.